In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the Politically Georgia podcast, where we bring you news and analysis of all the latest Georgia shenanigans in Congress and under the gold dome. And today I'm joined by my colleague, Maya Prabhu, to talk about the Georgia Lieutenant Governor's race. Hey, Maya, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. Great to have you. So, so Maya, tell us, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, races down the ticket, but why should people care about the Lieutenant Governor's race? So the lieutenant governor is in charge of the Senate. They serve, he or she serves as the president of the Senate and has the power to dictate what legislation um, makes it through the chamber and also sets priorities for each session and what can get accomplished. And it's hard to get any substantive policies through the legislature without the lieutenant governor's support. It's also kind of a step, stepping stone to higher office. We've seen many, many lieutenant governors before either run for governor or, or, or jockey about running for governor. Um, so one of the most powerful figures in Georgia, and of course, in case something happens to the governor, the lieutenant governor is the interim uh, replacement. So a, a big statewide position. Um, and there's a lot of people running for this job this year because Lieutenant Governor Casey Cagle is, after three terms in that, that office, is running now for governor, and he's the Republican frontrunner for the for the May, May 22nd primary. Um, so there's a lot of people running to try to take his place. Let's talk about the Republican side first. So on, this, on the Republican side, we have three Republicans who are running. Um, David, Senator David Schaefer, who has been in the Senate for 16 years, um, most recently serving as the president pro tem, which backs up the lieutenant governor. It's a pretty powerful position, right? Yes. Um, and he is running. Um, uh, also, we have Senator, former Senator Rick Jeffries. He resigned last year to focus on his um, candidacy. He served for about seven years in the Senate. And then we have Jeff Duncan, who served as a representative in the House for about five years before resigning last year to focus on his candidacy. Now, Schaefer, as the former pro tem, um, had a lot of, sort of built up a lot of chits. He built up a lot of power. He was able to, uh, to he, he's the leading fundraiser. He's the, he's the guy who had the most TV ads. He's raised more than a million bucks already. Um, so he's sort of seen as the front runner in this race. Our polls show him in the front, but they also show, what, about 60% of people are still undecided. Republicans are still undecided in this race. So it's still anyone's, anyone's game. What is, um, what is Schaefer running on? What are his top priorities? When I spoke with him uh, for my recent article, he talked a lot about um, 
you know, Senate procedure. He spoke about being, you know, frustrated with the way that um, things kind of drag on Senator's lollygag at the beginning of the 40-day session and then the last few weeks kind of rush everything through. Um, And senators often don't really know fully what they're voting on. So that was, you know, the main thing that he said he wanted to work on if he was elected. You know, he talked about... He's also running on a a, a very conservative platform with the NRA's endorsement. And that, to me, is really interesting um, because the NRA, of course, endorsed Casey Cagle after Casey Cagle came out and said, I will never support any tax break for Delta after... After what Delta, uh, after Delta cut ties with the group, but also the same day the NRA endorsed Cagle, they also it also endorsed um, Schaefer over his gun stances. So as as much as we've seen guns help shape the race for governor, it's also kind of shaping this race for lieutenant governor. And as a result, one of Schaefer's opponents, Rick Jeffries, did something uh, very surprising. Can you tell us about what he did? Uh, so he, you know, saying that he was frustrated that he didn't get that NRA endorsement and then later on also did not get the Georgia Carey endorsement. Schaefer got that endorsement as well. Uh, was really frustrated as a lifelong hunter and challenged Schaefer to a, what he called a friendly shoot, a clay (laughs) shoot, uh, and said that whoever won the clay shoot needed to bow out of the race. And of course, Schaefer just kind of laughed it off and declined to, uh, take him up on that. A high noon clay shoot at a, at a gun club. And Jeffries is, is interesting to watch um, because Jeffries has hired a team of, of veteran Republican strategists who are really running in that outsider conservative lane, um, being the outside the Metro Atlanta candidate because both his opponents are from Atlanta suburbs, um, and he's not. So he's the outside of, of you know, northern suburban Atlanta candidate um, who is, is running as an outsider um, on a pretty pro-Trump platform, but also on a platform where he's saying David Schaefer and, to a lesser degree, Jeff Duncan are part of the establishment that he wants to fight. One of the things Jeffries has done is he's gone on a tour. He calls it the sort of dirty jobs tour. He's gone on a tour meeting with sanitation workers and other people who sort of have overlooked jobs, um, saying, a lot like Trump, that he's the champion of the forgotten people, of, of, of Georgians who are working in uh, overlooked businesses and that he'll help them um, get free of taxes and regulations and help them more quickly start businesses and help their families. And that's something that's important to him as someone who owns a wastewater company, um, that he's, he's been in that business for decades. He has a son-in-law who um, does contract construction work. And, you know, so people who are in those types of jobs are close to him and important. And Jeff Duncan is the third Republican running for the seat. And Duncan might have the, the, the most uh, star-studded background because he was a former Georgia Tech star pitcher who played uh, briefly in the, the Florida Marlins uh, minor league system. And so about all of his campaign rhetoric has some form of the word pitch or baseball or something in it. And uh, he's on a bus tour in these final days of the race uh, pitching himself to Georgia voters. So, and he, so, so Duncan, you know, a part of his quote-unquote pitch is crackdowns on illegal immigration. He wants to reduce the state income tax, um, and, and he talks about more transparency. But, but overall, what is, I guess he's trying to go for that real outsider lane, having served the least time in, in, in public office. Yeah, he, he likes to say that he's the true outsider in the Republican primary. He served five years in the legislature, and he really pushes this idea of 
policy over politics if elected. You know, he says that everyone with a good idea would get a shot at bringing policy forth, and and he hates the idea of, of horse trading and backroom deals to get legislation moved through. Now, for all the Republican talk of being outsiders and, and bringing a fresh perspective, Democrats, the two Democrats running, are, really are true outsiders who have never served public office before and are, are relative unknowns in Democratic circles. I mean, neither of them... Uh, if you talk to Democratic insiders who have who have worked in the field for years, had really heard of either of these candidates um, before they announced. Yeah, so we have Sarah Riggs Amico, who um, has lived in Georgia for about seven years. Uh, she's a businesswoman um, owning a transportation or serving as the chairwoman of the board for a, a transportation company. Uh, she's never held public office before, but she really... Um, runs on her uh, business experience and says, I've, I've had to manage before. I have, man mm -hmm. I have the management and leadership skills that are necessary to lead a chamber. Um, and then we have Triana Arnold-James, who is, this is also her first run. Um, she has a small marketing company uh, that she uh, owns. And she is, again, a relative unknown. You know, she's done some advocacy work on healthcare, uh, specifically around cervical cancer awareness, and has gotten some recognition from that. But otherwise, she, you know, is a relative unknown. And the polls show this race uh, even more unsettled than the, the Republican race. The AJC poll showed Miss James, Triana Arnold James, at 20%, Amico at 10%, and at a whopping 70% undecided. Again, this was uh, a few weeks ago. Since then, Amico, Amico by far has outraised by far more money than, than James, um, uh, more than $500,000. I can't remember the close exact. To, close to $800,000. Close to $800,000. Uh, and starting to spend that on ads and on messaging. So I expect to see her, her poll numbers rise. Um, but she's kind of, one of her big pitches is on health care insurance, expanding uh, Medicaid coverage under Obamacare. And she reminds people, seemingly at every campaign stop, about how in her own logistics business, they picked up insurance tabs for their employees. Yeah, and and that's that's what she likes to say. She she knows how to go about expanding healthcare to more people because she had uh, a few thousand employees. I think it's thirty five hundred families that she's been able to do that for mm -hmm. in her own business. Um, and that personal business experience is something she's highlighting, as you mentioned, left and right because she runs this giant logistics uh, truck hauling firm. Mm -hmm. um, I think I guess she's trying to use that to appeal to working class voters who have fled the party because Democrats are going to need to grow their party in some form or fashion, either by getting liberal voters who never vote in elections or who rarely do, or by appealing to to to, to Republicans or moderates or independents who have fled the party. And I, and I guess her message is trying to use that working class strategy to appeal to a broader base of, of Democratic voters. Yeah, and, and something that was interesting, there was a debate recently uh, and something that her opponent, something that Ms. James brought up, was that uh, Ms. Amica was given money in the past to Republicans. She's voted in the past for Republicans. And, you know, Ms. Amico said, 
I'm, I'm supporting the person who I think is the best for the job. And that is a, that is a uh, benefit and not a negative. And it shows that I can work across the aisle and, and work with people because if she is elected lieutenant governor, she would be leading a majority Republican body. Yeah, barring an epic collapse, yeah, Republicans are still going to control <laughs> the Senate. They're still going to control the House. And so any Democrat in a statewide position would have to work across party aisles. But that's an example of something that could be a liability in a primary, uh, but, a, but a benefit in a general election. Um, and also, again, part of this whole that we're seeing two women running at the top of the Democratic ticket, two women running for this, sta- for this job, women up and down the ballots on the Democratic side. It's part of an, really an unprecedented uh, number of women running up and down the ticket. Yeah, and something that Ms. Miko said to me is it, it's never a bad thing to have a lot of women running for office. And that's exactly what she's facing in this race. And Ms. James, uh, what, what is her top priority? What does her candidacy revolve around? Uh, you know, she also focuses a lot on health care and expanding Medicaid. Um, she, you know, has worked in, in lobbying for mm-hmm. different health issues in the past, and so she really... Um, you know, they're very similar. And that was something I said to them, you know, you guys are a lot of, you guys are both Democrats, you're similar in a lot of ways, you know, where are the differences? And and there didn't seem to be a big one on, um, on this idea of healthcare and expanding Medicaid. Um, Just uh, Ms. Amico saying, I've done it before through business. And Ms. James saying, I've done it before through, through, I've, I've worked for healthcare through advocacy. And one of the uh, issues sort of I guess clouding this race is the, is the Me Too issue. There's a sexual complaint, uh, an ethics complaint, I should say, uh, filed against David Schaefer, the Republican frontrunner, um, claiming that he inappropriately harassed a female lobbyist um, who we, we will not name because her, we have, the AJC has a policy of not naming um, alleged victims in sexual harassment complaints. Um, but he, she claims that he sexually harassed her r- repeatedly, and she claimed that he even asked her to spoon naked with him in exchange um, for his support for one of the le- pieces of legislation that she was, she was backing as a lobbyist. Well, that claim um, ended up getting uh, voted down by the Senate Ethics uh, Committee, which essentially said after a, a very in-depth report um, that there's not enough evidence uh, to move forward on that complaint. Um, and so Schaefer says that, that is, that's exonerated him. His Republican opponents haven't spoken really publicly about it, but Sarah Riggs Amico has. Yeah, she talks about how in this this time of, of Me Too and trying to stand up and stop people from sexual harassment, sexual assault in the workplace, um, how, you know, why would you vote for someone who has been accused of doing something like that? Also, she, and surprisingly, all seven leading Republican and Democratic candidates for governor are on the same page on another issue. They're all calling for more transparency of these ethics complaints, because right now, the ethics complaints that are filed and the decisions that are made on those ethics complaints are all shielded from the public's eye. And sometimes this, this can even include state-funded, publicly-funded settlements for these ethics complaints. So she's calling for these to be open to the public, and so are all of the candidates running for governor. They're all also saying that these types of complaints, whether they be uh, some of them are saying they should be open to the public from the get-go. Others are saying after they're adjudicated. But either way, they're calling for much more transparency than we already have now. Because as we've experienced ourselves, we've had to go through all sorts of different channels to try to get these reports because right now they're not made available to the public. 
And and like you were saying, after folks are after the decisions are made on these cases, you even have in this instance David Schaefer saying, "Hey, I want the report to be released publicly because he feels vindicated in, mm-hmm. in what was found in that report." Great. Well, Maya, thank you so much for joining us. This is great. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. That's all for this latest edition of Politically Georgia Podcast. Please make sure to rate us, keep listening, and you can follow us on Twitter at PoliticallyGA and at Bluestein. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.